According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Preparation for the study of God's Word this morning. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are humble under the authority of God's Word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning thankful for Your truth and for the privilege we have to assemble together. And we ask, Father, for Your hand of uh, not only guidance on our study, but also protection, Father. Hedge us about. Uh, protect us from those that would come in here and, and bring us to harm. And, uh, Father, we just thank You for being faithful. Thank You for being merciful. We thank You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty. Join me in John chapter 10 this morning. John chapter 10. We have a new event that we're going to proceed on into, episode number 18, event number 18 in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus. If you're following along in our Harmony of the Gospels, working our way through the the final section, really, the last Judean and Perean ministry is the last section of ministry prior to the Passion Week itself. So we are approaching the Passion Week. This episode actually gives us a pinpoint time frame. Uh, the Gospel of John is very good for that in uh, dating the various uh, Passover feasts, dating the various other feasts. Uh, here in John chapter 10, verse 22, we have Hanukkah. We have the Feast of Dedication. And so uh, this puts us into a December time frame. And uh, we understand, of course, that we're headed for the cross on Friday, April 3rd, uh, 33 A.D. So we're, we're now at this point in in our Life of Christ series, we are now within four months of the cross. We have covered uh, three years plus and we are closing in on the final four uh, months of uh, of our Savior's earthly life. All right. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered round him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus said to them, Well, duh. That's a slight paraphrase. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's a free verse translation out of the Greek. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe. So his testimony they rejected, the miracles the Father provided they rejected. They rejected testimony after testimony after testimony. What more do they want? And uh, the truth is they don't want the truth. They want accusation, and that's what we're going to take our time to look at here today. But this leads into one of the greatest uh, messages he ever gave during his three and a half years of ministry, where he says, uh, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. <laughs> so you, uh, 
you understand their mentality. You understand their mindset. You understand that they were uh, an executing, an execution mindset mob simply looking for an excuse. They were not humble under the authority of God's word. They were not diligent Bible students. They were not looking for answers. They were looking for excuses to accomplish the murder that in their minds they already had intended. All right. Well, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each one of us, do we pray already? We did. How about that? Do we need to pray a second time? That's why you were all giving me that weird look. All right, well then don't worry about it. You're telling me the truth. Really? All right. I don't think all nine of you would be lying to me, so we'll, we'll just get going. How about that? Feast of Dedication. What are we talking about with the Feast of, De- of Dedication? Hanukkah as it's known in modern times, as we call it today. In the Greek, point one, it's called Ta and Kainia. T-A, this is a definite article, the, it's the neuter plural. Ta and Kainia. E-N-K-A-I-N-I-A. Enkainia. It's actually E-G, but the G becomes an N in front of the kappa there. E-G-K or E-N-K-A-I-N-I-A. Ta in Kainia. Kainos is uh, the adjective meaning new. In Kainao, there's verb forms and adjective forms, n- uh, noun forms, and so forth. Uh, but it speaks of the newness. Uh, it's a compound, E-N plus Kainia. And uh, with the newness uh, concept in, in the vocabulary, uh, it's the idea of something that is being dedicated or something that's being rededicated, as it were. And uh, you can call it the festival of uh, the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Rededication, if you want to be technical about it, because it's commemorating the uh, rededication of the temple uh, in the time of the Maccabees, during the intertestamental time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, does, of course, the temple was originally built by Solomon in 1000 B.C. Uh, the temple was then destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Uh, when Israel was allowed to return, when the Jews were allowed to return back to Jerusalem, when the Persians released them from their captivity, uh, under Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel, they returned, they built a new temple, um, or they rebuilt the Temple of Solomon on its original place. And then that is the temple, what's sometimes called the second temple, uh, that was then defiled under the Greek invasion. So um, some of the intertestamental history then becomes important to understand, not only for uh, New Testament studies, but even just simply for the, the history of the Jewish people, because uh, to this day, the Maccabean era the, or the Hasmonean era is considered a golden age, is considered a wonderful time. It was a time of, of uh, what they thought was a time of prosperity, it was a time of glory. They, they successfully fought for their freedom. Uh, there was a lot of heroism, a lot of patriotism at that time. And we do the same thing. We confuse patriotism with uh, you know, national blessing, or we, we confuse patriotism with the Christian way of life. We have to make the distinction there. And what they did was they set up a priestly family, the line of, of uh, Joseph Maccabeus, the, the hammerer, or Judas, I'm sorry, and his children, 
um, they were priests. They were Levites, and they had no business being kings sitting on a throne. And so the Hasmonean line, the the uh, throne of the Hasmoneans there is not legitimate, never was legitimate, certainly wasn't biblical. Uh, the scepter does not depart from Judah. Uh, Jesus is not of the line of the Maccabees. He's of the line of David, and that's the eternal covenant to David. It was not a Davidic throne, which, by the way, is what helped the Pharisees rise to their uh, glory and to their preeminence. The Pharisees um, were the opponents in a lot of cases to the Sadducees, to the priestly line, and uh, different things that happened there. Well, well, we'll see some of that, that history here this morning. So Ta uh, in Kania is the festival of rededication, and this is really, I think, the only place in the New Testament where it's mentioned. The Hebrew is uh, given there, Chanukah, C-H-A-N-U-K-K-A-H, when you transliterate it, Chanukah, and normally... I even made an error there in my transliteration. A lot of times when I transliterate it, I will take that little A right there and superscript it, make, raise it up a little bit, because it's only half a vowel. It's only um, because of the shawa there. So if, if LaRose is probably the only one that cares about this, but the C-H and then superscript the A and then the N-U-K-K-A-H. And uh, that way you can rush ahead. You don't put the accent on the Khan. You can rush through that short syllable to the Chanuk, Chanukah, number 2597. Actually, this is a noun that has two Strong's numbers. It's listed both as 2597 and 2598. It's the same word, but when Strong's was giving his concordance, he went ahead and broke them up uh, into two different applications. And so that, that has happened on occasion. So that's the Hebrew equivalent. The annual festival by this name was inaugurated, sorry, between the Old Testament and New Testament. The verb itself means to inaugurate. So the idea that this festival was inaugurated um, is a little bit redundant and repetitive. Um, but it was inaugurated between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is recorded in 1 Maccabees. Have I ever asked you to turn to 1 Maccabees? Never. And you probably don't even have a Bible with you today that you could turn to 1 Maccabees in, right? <laughs> Unless you have a new revised standard or you, you actually brought in your pocket Septuagint or something. All right. So, since you did not bring it with you, I will uh, read it for you myself. Um, I thought I had put a link there. That's okay. Let's bring up the... Um, Libronic software here, assuming that it wants to work. I don't know why the plasma is not working today, but that's all right. Hello. It's thinking about it. Deciding whether it wants to obey. There we go. Apocrypha. And we're headed for 1 Maccabees 4. Verses 36 through 59. Also, by the way, you can read um, parallel accounts in um, Josephus uh, of the various uh, Maccabees editions, you know, first, second, third. Uh, first is considered the most historically reliable, very accurate. In fact, it was read uh, for, not for scriptural basis, it wasn't truly accepted as scripture, although it was included in the Septuagint, the early church didn't accept it as being canonical or biblical. 
and uh, but it is the most accurate and it is very consistent with um, Josephus as well. So let me skim on down here. Uh, we don't want to read all of chapter four. Let me just put it into a um, context from the book of Daniel. We studied the book of Daniel chapter 11. There was a prophetic message in that book related to the king of the north, king of the south. If you recall that from the book of Daniel. And uh, it focused on the divided Greek empire. After Alexander the Great had died, uh, no one successor took over the entire Greek empire. Macedonian empire was broken up to his four generals and Ptolemy. Uh, set up his Greek kingdom in Egypt. Uh, Seleucid uh, was the Greek kingdom in in Syria, and then a couple of others as well uh, in uh, Asia Minor and in Macedonia itself. Let's do that. Make it big enough to read. And so, keep in mind, Ptolemy's Egypt was not an Egyptian empire; it was a Greek empire in located in Egypt with dominion over the Egyptian, the native Egyptian people. Likewise, the Seleucid Empire was not an Assyrian empire; it was a Greek empire uh, that had dominion over the native uh, Assyrian people, for example. But it was a Greek empire nonetheless. Greek culture, Greek language, Greek. Uh, mythology, Greek uh, economics, Greek everything, see, with a, a subject native people to that particular land. And so the warfare back and forth was a warfare between Greek cultures, Greek generals, Greek uh, governments, uh, largely fought by native soldiers, either Egyptian, Syrian, and so forth. And so that's the king of the north, king of the south uh, conflict that is included there in Daniel chapter 11. Historically, that took place during uh, the intertestamental period, during the time of the Maccabees. Uh, prophetically, of course, there are still elements remaining to unfold that will be tribulational. There will be an, an eschatological king of the north and an eschatological king of the south, and they will collide against Israel in the tribulational time. And we've studied that out of Daniel chapter 11. So, in this realm, then, uh, of the kings of the north, the most wicked of them all was Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, Antiochus IV, of all the, the various uh, uh, Greek kings that took the name Antiochus. He was the fourth, and he was the worst. <laughs> all right? he, uh, he took the name for himself Epiphanes, meaning glorious one. Uh, the Jews nicknamed him Epimenes. They changed the PH to an M. And by changing Epiphanes to Epimenes, they gave him the nickname uh, the Madman, was what Epimenes stands for. And he was. He was quite mad. He was, he was insane. He was demonic. He was foreshadowing of Antichrist. He was a little horn on the Greek beast in Daniel chapter 8. And he foreshadows the little horn on the Roman beast from Daniel chapter, 11, uh, Daniel chapter 7. So he really is a foreshadowing of Antichrist. And what he did was, when he conquered Jerusalem and when he subjected the Jewish people again, he uh, put a stop to their sacrifices in the, in the te temple. He uh, even moved his soldiers in and uh, created an abomination in the holy place, uh, sacrificed a pig on the uh, altar there in the Holy of Holies, and just a, a terrible defilement. Um, trying to crush the Jewish spirit, trying to bring the Jewish people into conformity with Hellenism, with Zeus worship and, 
and so forth. Well, this didn't work. <laughs> All it did was spark a revolt. It sparked an uprising. And patriotic, faithful, devout Jewish people wanted none of it. They would rather die on the battlefield than have Zeus worshipped in their Holy of Holies. And so this sets the stage then for Judas. For Judas, um, the Levite, and his family, Matthias uh, and others, Levi, I been a while since I've read through it, so I'm rusty on some of the names. But he got the nickname Maccabeus. Uh, he got the nickname, and that's even disputed what it stands for, but it's usually uh, understood to be the hammer, the hammerer, and uh, from, an, from an Aramaic stem. And uh, anyway, they, they fought a battle, and they, they fought several battles. They fought a prolonged campaign and war for their independence, primarily winning because uh, the Greeks had other problems, including basically the Romans. <laughs> so the Romans were coming in and gradually conquering the Greeks, and because of that and the other distractions, um, the Jews won their independence. And they set up a, a kingdom, they set up a throne, uh, they put uh, the Maccabees on that throne, and uh, as I said, it was a Levitical priestly king, which was uh, not consistent with the uh, the Davidic throne and what God had for them. So anyway, we read this now in First Maccabees, and there's other battles that precede this. Um, and I'll just pick up reading in verse... 34, I suppose. So they joined battle and there were slain of the host of Lysias, about 5,000 men, even before them uh, were they slain. Now when Lysias saw his army put to flight and the manliness of Judas' soldiers and how they were ready either to live or die valiantly, he went into Antiochia and gathered together a company of strangers and having made his army greater than it was, he purposed to come again into Judea. Yeah, the Greeks were really great for hiring extra mercenaries and going back and trying again. Then uh, said Judas and his brethren, Behold, our enemies are discomfited. This is an old, uh, about 1901 translation here. Discomfited. Let us go up to cleanse and dedicate the sanctuary. Now that verb dedicate, in the Greek version of this, uh, the, in the Septuagint, uh, that dedicate there is the verb behind what we're studying today in the Feast of Dedication. All right, The Enkania terminology. So let us go up and cleanse and dedicate the sanctuary. Upon this, all the host assembled themselves together and went up to Mount Zion. And when they saw the sanctuary desolate and the altar profaned and the gates burned up and the shrubs growing in the courts as in a forest or in one of the mountains, yea, and the priest chambers pulled down, they rent their clothes and made great lamentation and cast ashes upon their heads and fell down flat to the ground upon their faces and blew an alarm with the trumpets and cried toward heaven. Then Judas appointed certain men to fight against those that were in the fortress until he had cleansed the sanctuary. So he chose priests of blameless uh, conversation, such as had pleasure in the law, um, who cleansed the sanctuary and bear out the defiled stones to an unclean place. And when they consulted what to do with the altar of burnt offerings, which was profaned, they thought it best to pull it down, lest it should be a reproach to them, because the heathen had defiled it. Wherefore, they pulled it down and laid up the stones in the mountain of the temple in a convenient place until there should come a prophet to show what should be done with them. Now, they at least recognize the fact that they have been without a prophet for quite some time. They have been without a prophet since Malachi, the last of the writing prophets. And uh, they're living in this age of expectancy as they're watching the weeks go by, the seven-year periods of time go by that Daniel had spoken of. They knew that Shiloh was approaching. And, of course, a prophet would arise, John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness. And uh, things that will happen there in about another 100, 
130 years after this point of time. Uh, so then they took the whole stones according to the law and built the new altar according to the former and made up the sanctuary and the things that were in the temple and hallowed the courts. They made also new holy vessels and into the temple they brought the candlestick and the altar burnt offerings and of incense and the table. And uh, upon the altar they burnt incense and the, and the lamps that uh, were upon the candlestick they lighted that they might give light in the temple. And see, the lamps, not only was it significant for them there, with all the damage being done, they needed to light the, the temple while they were doing their work. And if you know anything about Hanukkah, the lights, the, the lighting of the candlestick, the, the lamps, it's very significant for uh, the remembrance of this, uh, of this event, commemorating this event. And so upon the altar they burned incense, the lamps that were upon the candlestick they lighted, that they may give light in the temple. Furthermore, they set the loaves upon the table and spread out the veils and finished all the work they had begun to make. Now on the five and twentieth day of the ninth month, which is called the month Kislev, or sometimes it's called Kislev, Chislev, depending on how it's transliterated. So Kislev the 25th. Right? This is Hanukkah. It doesn't always correspond. In fact, very seldom does it actually correspond with December the 25th. Occasionally it does. But remember, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. And uh, so sometimes it's uh, late November, sometimes early December, that kind of a time frame. And... Uh, Anyway, so they uh, are able to cleanse the temple and uh, rededicate it with uh, kitherns and harps and cymbals, or citherns and harps and cymbals. People fell on their faces, worshiping and praising the God of heaven who had given them good success. And so they kept the dedication of the altar eight days, offered burnt offerings with gladness, and sacrificed the sacrifice of deliverance and praise. Now, some of the other history for this, why did they do eight days? They weren't commanded to do eight days. This was entirely their idea. This was, uh, there was no command from Scripture. There was no voice of the Lord uh, speaking through a prophet saying, you know, from this day forward thou shalt observe the Feast of Dedication for eight days and so forth. Well, uh, a couple of months prior to this, they had uh, not been allowed to participate in the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is an eight-day feast, for example, following uh, in that same month there with the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and so forth. And so, basically, it seemed like a good idea at the time. They went ahead and observed this for eight days, and uh, it kind of made up for the eight days they couldn't do for the Feast of Tabernacles. In any event, that's why to this day, when Hanukkah is observed, it is observed in, uh, in an eight-day process. All right, well, there's more on that. Um, if you want, you can obtain your own copy at some point and read through First Maccabees chapter 4. Uh, Josephus, as well, gives you the historical record of this, uh, both in, uh, I think, Antiquities of the Jews and um, the Wars of the Jews. He actually records the story in both of his major works. Subpoint A. The significance of the feast and the season beyond the fact that it's just simply mentioned here, it does help us to pinpoint chronology for the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John is our best friend in the chronology of the ministry of Jesus Christ. The significance of the feast and season helps us to pinpoint chronology for the ministry of Jesus. We have the reference to feast of dedication there in verse 22. And then we have the season. It was winter in verse 23. All right, so this is a help for us. You realize... Of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written first. Uh, I believe in that order. Some people think Mark comes first, but 
what have you, but they were written first, and then decades later is when the fourth gospel was composed. The gospel of John was the last of the gospels, and we can be very thankful for it, because if we didn't have the gospel of John, if all we had were the synoptic gospels, the the three largely, uh, they're called synoptic because they cover many of the same, or mostly the same events, um, do you know that if we all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we wouldn't have any clue more than about a year or just a little over a year uh, for the ministry of Jesus Christ. There are not the seasonal markers, the feast markers, the, the points. If all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we wouldn't have any clue that his ministry lasted more than about a year and a half, see, if that. Well, John really helps us to pinpoint three and a half years. Some people think four and a half or even five and a half years, depending on how you handle the different feasts that are mentioned. So we're able to pinpoint chronology. The winter Hanukkah time frame places this event within four months of the crucifixion. Within four months of the crucifixion. We want to identify with that because we've already started to see, I mean, the hostility has increased. It's increased and increased and increased. And you understand now we are on not only the downhill side, but the very steep downhill side headed towards the cross. You see there the mood of the crowd. They're on a hair trigger. I mean, they're ready to kill him now. They've been, they've been plotting. They've been trying. They want him to open his mouth and convict himself. You know, all he has to say is, I am the Christ. And that's their guilty verdict as far as they're concerned. All right. Never mind the fact that it's true. (laughs) In their mind, anyone making such a claim is, by virtue of that claim, guilty. See. So when they say, tell us plainly, they're asking him to hang himself. They're asking him to uh, pronounce his own uh, condemnation. Uh, at least from their standpoint. Now, obviously, anyone else in the universe that claims it is blasphemous and, and, and needs to be put to death other than the one for whom it is true. When he claims to be God, when he claims to be the Son of God, when he claims to be the Christ, well, in his case, of course, it's true. Anyone else is blasphemy and, and uh, I guess they have a, a legal basis for executing the uh, the blasphemer. All right. Which is really the second thing we want to see in this text. Point two then. The Jews demand Jesus make a plain claim of being the Messiah. They want plain language. They want a straightforward statement. I am the Christ. How many I am statements has he made prior to this? Several. And he's got more on the way. The Gospel of John is great for these I am messages. They want him to say, I am the Christ. And it's interesting, in the seven or eight I am statements that he makes, they're all saying that he is the Christ, just not in those words, not in the terminology they expect. So the Jews, the Jews demand Jesus make a plain claim. Verse 24, the Jews then gathered round him. Pretty harsh terminology, we're going to see that here in a moment. It's not a friendly gathering. They mobbed him. And we'll see the terminology there in a moment. Saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? (laughs) You can have some fun preaching that verse, actually. See? 
See what fun you can have? You can keep people in suspense? Well, their soul was in suspense. And we're going to talk about the soul of the Jewish people and what the heart of the Jewish people was seeking after here in a moment. Well, first of all, let's remind ourselves, who are these Jews? Okay, We've seen it repeatedly, particularly in the Gospel of John, but even in the Synoptic Gospels as well. The Jews is a technical term. It's one we've, been, we've seen a number of times already, several times. Here we are 260 hours into our Life of Christ series, and um, we've seen it I don't know how many times. The Jews, okay, that's a group. It's like, uh, you know, not, a, not like the Beatles or, you know, the, the Rolling Stones, but the Jews is a technical term. Because otherwise, if you just look at it, you say, well, Jesus is a Jew, right? The disciples are Jews. Peter and Andrew, I mean, they're all Jews. I mean, pretty much everybody you're reading about in these books are Jews, other than maybe Roman soldiers or, or Pilate or something like that. But isn't it kind of obvious to say the Jews? Okay, There's a reason for it, and it's actually a technical term. The, the Judeans may be a better way to render it. Eudaios, uh, hoi eudaios, or hoi, I'm sorry, in plural it would be hoi eudaioi. Uh, and these are the the uh, the Judean Jews, the, uh, as opposed to Galileans, who are racially Jewish, but they're not um, they're not Judeans. They're not from Jerusalem. They're not the right sort of Jews, as it were. They're rather rustic. They're rather uh, they associate with. They live in the midst of Gentiles. Galilee was very mixed. There were Greek centers of population, Roman centers of population, Samaritan centers of population, Jewish centers of population. Um, and um, they were really looked down upon. And, and of course, Jerusalem was the, uh, was the apple of Yahweh's eye. Jerusalem was where the temple was. Jerusalem was where the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai were located. Jerusalem was where the Sanhedrin took their, uh, held their uh, court Jerusalem was the place to be. So the Jews, hoi eudaioi, in this context, they were Mosaic law observant religious Jews. Mosaic law observant. In fact, even today, if you travel to Israel today, there's quite a distinction between secular Jewish people. You know, uh, your, your average you know, man on the street Israeli and he's very secular, he's very worldly, might even be very communistic or socialistic. Uh, doesn't, he's not observant. They have, a very, uh, they have a line, actually, between observant and non-observant. Meaning, okay, it's their race, it's their culture, but they're not observant of the feasts and the expectations and, and things of that nature. These guys are. These are Pharisee followers or Sadducee followers or Hillel or Shammai followers. They are rabbi followers. Okay? And I call it here, and I keep trying to come up with different terms for it, but the Mosaic Law observant, religious Jews, the theocratic slash nomocratic adherents of Judaism. Theocratic slash nomocratic. What's nomocratic? Law following, the rule of law. Namas meaning law, kratos meaning power. The rule of law. And of course, if you are subject to the power of law, a nomocracy, okay, or kritocracy, I prefer nomocracy, but either way, um, there are in fact people in our culture that wonder, are we approaching that? Are we approaching a tyranny of black robe judges that, that rule by decree? 
see. Well, if so, then your priesthood is what? Your priesthood is the body of lawyers. Your priesthood is the body of lawyers that participate in that realm. And they have their hierarchy of their priests and their high priests. And, of course, their uh, appellate court judges, their Supreme Court judges. You know, in ancient Israel, it was the Sanhedrin was the pinnacle. And um, very uh, law-based. We're, we're approaching that, I think, in some respects in our country. Well, um, that's who we're talking about here. And, of course, Jesus was public enemy number one as far as they were concerned because he violated so many of their laws, right? He refused to uh, observe what they held as their expectations for the Sabbath. And he was just a lawbreaker as far as they were concerned. Their law. Of course, he never broke Mosaic law. He never violated God's command. He himself was the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, he didn't march to their tune. And he certainly wasn't one of their schools. They, they viewed him as being illiterate, as being uneducated, that he was not credentialed because he was not one of them. See. So they want plain language. Uh, they besieged him. Subpoint A. They besieged around him. Kuklao. I call these guys kooks. K-U-K-L-O-O. Kuklao. Kuklao. K-U-K-L-O-O. Kuklao. Not like a cuckoo clock. Kook. But think what happens when, when a lot of times when Greek comes through Latin and reaches English... A lot of the K's become C's. A lot of the U's become Y's. And so if instead of K-U-K-L-O-O, you have a C-Y-C-L cycle or circle. Cycle. The idea of surrounding, the idea of going around and around and around. And that's the idea of kuklao is that they were surrounding him. They were besieging around him. Kuklao, 29-44. There's, uh, I think, I didn't list it. I believe there's some cognate noun and adjectival forms as well, some compounds. But the only one we're going to really focus on here is this verb. Notice, uh, let's look at a handful. Only five places to look up, so it won't take us too long. But starting in Luke 21-20, Luke 21:20, and I think some of these just get pretty vivid, and then we'll come back to John 10 and we'll see how vivid it is. And uh, this is in a uh, eschatological prophecy that our Savior was uh, issuing forth as an Old Testament prophet. I think you, you need to. For the end times of the Jewish people, you need to understand Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the Twelve, and Jesus. You need to understand his Olivet Discourse, his Upper Room Discourse. You need to understand his prophetic messages. Put them back into an Old Testament prophet realm and you'll have the complete picture. Well, here you have it in Luke 21. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes in various places, plagues, famines. Great signs from heaven. These uh, are the beginnings of birth pangs and the things that happen here. You'll be hated, verse 17, you'll be hated by all uh, because of my name. 
and uh, yet not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain your lives. Verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem, Kuklao, surrounded by enemies, then recognize that her, not her salvation is near, her desolation is near. And when desolation is upon you, let those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. Those who are in the country must not enter in. Because uh, these are the days of vengeance. God's wrath is going to pour out upon who? Israel, upon Jerusalem, upon the Jewish people. This is the wrath of God, the discipline of God is going to bring them to repentance. The church has nothing to do with this. Days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant. Oh, sorry, Kendall. <laughs> all right. But let's just be honest here. If we, if we had to flee out of this building right here, right now, and run for our lives, uh, you probably wouldn't be the quickest one out of here, would you? <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay. It slows you down. And nursing babies in those days. They will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We dealt with this uh, last week, a week before. We were talking about different uh, terminology. The times of the Gentiles. That is the time from Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of the Davidic throne until the Davidic throne is reinstated. Jerusalem is subject to Gentile dominion. Has been since 586 B.C. It still is today. All right. So when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that is a hostile surrounding. It's a point we're trying to illustrate. This uh, reference in John 10 that, well, you know, they gathered around him. It sounds, you know, like a, a football huddle. A coach says, hey, all right, everybody, gather around. Let's talk. It's not friendly. They were swarming around him. They were besieging around him. They were surrounding him ready to... Uh, swarming him, just ready to put him to death. Absolutely. Almost like the uh, assassination of Julius Caesar on the Ides of March, surrounding him of, with hostile intent. All right, Acts 14.20. Acts 14.20. Hmm. And another violent uh, context. This is Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And um, interestingly enough, they had ministry in one place and they get run out of town. And uh, let's see here in the. Well, yeah, uh, early on they're in uh, Laconia, Lystra and Derby, the surrounding region They continue to preach the gospel. And um, well, let's see, verse five. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe in the surrounding region. So there uh, and there they continue to preach the gospel. And so then they have ministry until, verse 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And in other words, they, they're tracking them down. They're hunting them down, following them from place to place. And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Supposing him to be dead. I used to think this was the event that coincided with him being caught up to the third heaven and receiving the thorn in the flesh and seeing the things. Uh, I, I, uh, I've since reevaluated that, and I think 
uh, I think the chronology doesn't work out well with that respect. Because he does say, we'll talk about this in Second Corinthians, we talk about the thorn in the flesh, uh, because the 14-year time span, um, anyway, you've got to do some work on that and figure out. I, I'm no longer convinced that this is that, to be identified with that event. But anyway, i got some time before we get to chapter uh, 12, so we'll see. Nevertheless, he is uh, stoned to death, dragging him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, and that's the term. Now, here, I think with the disciples, you don't have the hostile attend. I think that they're uh, surrounding him to protect him from being. But still, there is a hostile, um, there is still a hostile activity going on. And they were stoning him, and the disciples gathered around to maybe protect him or maybe uh, see if they could get him out of there before they, the crowd just ripped him to shreds kind of a thing. Nevertheless, the disciples don't have the hostile intent, but still it's a, it's a context of violence that's going on. And, uh, and so he gets up and goes back into the city. Wow, I guess he's not so dead, right? He was only mostly dead. Every time I say that, I find out who's seen The Princess Bride. Okay. Hebrews 11.30. Hebrews 11.30. I quoted some movie quote the other day, and then I realized when I was driving home, it wasn't exactly a very Christian movie, and I probably last watched it before my uh, during my army days or something. I don't know. Did you pick up on that? Obviously, you weren't scandalized that your pastor had seen such a thing. Okay, Hebrews 11.30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Encircled. I like that, encircled. That's a good translation of, of kuklao, because even you know etymologically, that's where the word circle or cycle comes from. So uh, why don't we render that instead of uh, they gathered around him, they encircled him. They encircled him. Now, when Israel was encircling Jericho, did they have a friendly intent? Oh, that's right. They had hostile intent. They were ordered to march around and blow a trumpet and shout, and the walls were going to fall down. They were going to go in and murder, not murder, but kill everybody in the act of warfare. Of course, Rahab was rescued. Rahab the harlot. That bothers people. All right, and then finally, Revelation chapter 20. I know, you're all very sensitive, very modern, very genteel Texans, and you prefer, every time you read that, you prefer in your mind to think Rahab the former harlot. Rahab the, you know, used to be harlot before she got saved kind of a thing. Well, if you're that, if you're that touchy over things, then okay. But not what the Bible says. Not what the Bible says. She was a harlot. All right. Revelation 20 and verse 9. When the thousand years are completed, Satan is released from his prison, comes out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Keep in mind, he has been in prison for a thousand years. Jesus Christ has reigned for a thousand years in a, on a world that was populated by 100% believers a thousand years ago. But they started having babies, and they started having babies, and they started having babies. Think how many generations we've had since uh, 1009 A.D., all right. And now how many unbelievers are there and how many unbelievers are there that hate the perfect government, perfect environment, perfect situation they're born in? And so he comes out to deceive the nations, to gather them together for the war and the number of them. It doesn't say 
<laughs> he didn't have trouble scraping together a handful of, of malcontents. The number of them was like the sand of the seashore. Now, gathering together for the war is interesting because you have to, you have to reconcile this with a passage in Isaiah that says they will never again learn war. That they will beat their spears into, uh, uh swords into plowshares or spears into printing hooks. They actually, the, the, the industrial, uh, military complex is dismantled. It has not been, there has not been munitions produced in a thousand years. So what kind of war is this? It's not a conventional war. They're not taking up arms. What are they doing? See, it's an unconventional war, and it's interesting to evaluate when you reconcile this with uh, not only Isaiah, but Joel and other places. Uh, I believe this is a massive human rights protest, a civil war of social rebellion in uh, ways that are going to make our current you know, little Tea Party things kind of seem minuscule. All right. Anyway, they're going to gather together. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. Surrounded, encircled, kuklao, with violent intent. And the beloved city and fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. So good news. The good guys win. All right. Well, this is the terminology then back to John chapter 10. They gathered around him. They encircled him. Murder is in their heart. You see, they're just, they got itchy, not trigger fingers, but, you know, stone fingers. They're, they're itchy to pick up stones and start putting them to death. And they were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? They besieged around him and their soul is lifted up. Amazing idiom here. How long will you lift up our soul? Lift up our soul. Or the term lift up might even also mean take away. Jesus says, if, I, if I'm lifted up again, if I'm taken away, um, the expression can, can apply either to a physical lifting or a metaphoric lifting. Uh, by lifting, it can imply or can signify removal. But lifting up the soul. Holding the soul in uh, suspense. And interesting, too, they, it's phrased here in the singular. It's our, plural. How long will you lift up our soul? Multiple people, single soul. Fascinating um, idiom. And, and one that uh, puzzles everybody. You read the commentators, you read the linguists, you read the grammars. And uh, most folks ignore the whole thing, and, and then others. It's not found, this idiom isn't found in the Old Testament, not found in the New Testament. Uh, there is a pagan uh, Greek citation that's listed in, in Liddell Scott. Um, it, it's kind of interesting. But the idea of the soul of a people has got me pondering. What is the soul of the Jewish people? What is their core? What is there, uh, if, you, if you consider that the soul is the real you, if you consider that you're not your, your body, you're not your, the, the real you is your soul. That's who you are. It, it's currently clothed in a body, uh, but it's got a new body on order, and it's going to be clothed in a new body, but your soul is you. You know, you can chop off body parts, and, and you're still you. 
And even when you leave your body, you're still you because your body stays here and goes in the grave somewhere and you go to you go to glory. Absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So you are you. And it's not your body. You are your soul. See. And so what is the soul or the core or the reality of the Jewish people? What has been their expectation ever since the prophets first uttered the promises regarding the seed of the woman, regarding the seed of Abraham, regarding the seed of David, regarding the uh, destiny and blessing for the Jewish people? Their very soul goes back to the Abrahamic covenant, goes back to, I will bless those who bless you, the one who curses you, I will curse, and you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How long will you keep us in suspense? How long will you lift up um, our soul? I mentioned, by the way, um, let me correct something I said. I mentioned that this idiom is not found in the Old Testament. It is. It's found repeatedly in the Old Testament, just not in this uh, application. Okay? Because every time David or the psalmist, or the, they would say, to you I lift up my soul. It's always worshipful. It's always, you know, Mary lifts up her soul when she sings the Magnificat, when Gabriel comes to her and tells her about a baby. And, and the psalmist, David, and the other psalmist will say, to you I lift up my soul. And that's a worship application. So the idiom is found just not in this precise um, context. And, and, and you really can't understand this as a uh, worship function of Jesus uh, this is a frustration on their part with the way that he speaks. Frustration with the way that he ministers. Frustration with uh, claims he, in their mind, claims he's almost making but not quite. Say. Anyway, it's uh, remarkable and it's one that I don't have all the answers on, but I hope to at some point. Tell us openly. Tell us openly. A.T. Robertson's got a wonderful paragraph on this expression. If you have his uh, uh, word pictures in the Greek New Testament, it's a wonderful resource. It's about a six-volume set. In fact, it was one of the very first uh, technical uh, reference works in my library, as a matter of fact. It was an ordination. I think my dad gave me this. It was a gift from my father at my ordination. It was a set of A.T. Robertson's, a six-volume set of his word pictures. Um, here's an excellent uh, paragraph on this expression. I'll read it for you here in a moment. But the last time Jesus made a, a, a declarative I am statement, his last plain spoken claim to being the Christ was an I am statement, and it motivated their stoning him. Back in John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59. So, yeah, how quickly is he going to be ready to, uh, to just say, oh, okay, yeah, I'm the Christ? Recognize, of course, he is illustrating for us our imperative to be shrewd as serpents yet harmless as doves. He's not afraid of dying, but he wants to be obedient to the Father and die in the right way, at the right place, at the right time, bearing our sins. He knows what his destiny is. He knows what his work assignment is going to be. And it's going to be on a cross. It's not going to be stoned. And so he, to obey his Father, has to live long enough to die in the right way, at the right time, at the right place. So, Hopefully that's a, a concept we can we can hold on to. Let me read this quote here from A.T. Robertson. Maybe not. 
right? There's more than one way to skin a dog. Don't do anything to cats. Are you kidding? Cats are cool. Dogs are the dumb things that need to be skinned. All right. Look, I'll use my figures of speech. You use yours, all right? <laughs> oh, you guys are fun. All right. Tell us openly. Let me read from A.T. Robertson here. They came around him, Aorist active indicative from Kuklao. And um, we saw some of the verses that are mentioned there. Evidently, the hostile Jews cherish the memory of the stinging rebuke given them by Jesus when here last, particularly the allegory of the good shepherd. Remember that, in fact, maybe we've lost track of that because we've been in Luke for so much uh, length of time. But if you back up to the paragraph prior to this paragraph, um, he was giving them the the good shepherd uh, language, that he was the door, he was the good shepherd. Uh, The good shepherd lays down his life for the the, uh, sheep. And, uh, and then a division, in verse 19, a division occurred uh, because of these words. Many of them saying he has a demon, he's insane, why are you listening to him? And then others said, well, yeah, but he healed the man born blind. You know, he's, he's doing these miracles. We're, we're not doing these miracles. What's wrong with us? Is he, is he really serving the, the Lord here? So, um, in any event, they... Uh, Ask, how long dost thou hold us in suspense? And the, the verb there, Iro, to lift up, and their soul, and the different uh, things there. If thou art the Christ, condition of the first class, assumed to be true, by the way. It's interesting. It's the same language that Satan used. Since you are the Son of God, command that these stones be, be bred. See, the devil knew he was the Christ. The, ne- the devil knew he was the Son of God. So they use a first-class condition. It's assumed to be true. If you are the Christ, since you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly. Conclusion with apon rather than the usual apa. And uh, the point is plainly, parasia, plainly, parasia. And uh, next week I may expand upon this. I'm not sure, but uh, parasia is a wonderful word study that speaks of plainness, openness, um, intimacy as you speak in plainness with with someone you're familiar with. Uh, but it also, if you are um, plain or if you are open, if you are upfront with people, then you are confident. And parousia oftentimes is rendered as confidence. And you and I are commanded to have confidence. We need to have confidence. Confidence should be um, characteristic of our Christian walk. And if there's a wonderful wordplay that, that takes place between parousia and parousia. Because parousia is the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are waiting for his parousia at the rapture of the church, his appearance, his appearing. And we want to have parousia at his parousia. We want to have confidence at his appearing. It's, it's a tremendous doctrine. And so I don't know if how much of that we'll get into, but it, it, it's one I enjoy studying every time. And since it is used here, it might be an opportunity to do that. But tell us openly, tell us confidently, tell us plainly, tell us in, uh, in an upfront manner. Be straight with us. Are you the Christ? The demand seemed fair enough on the surface. Uh, they had made it before when here at the Feast of Tabernacles back in John chapter 8. Jesus declined to use the word Christos. He just wouldn't use the term Christos. That was the buzzword. That was their uh, conviction. If he uses the word, he's guilty. Okay, in the Hebrew, it's Mashiach, Messiah. If he uses Christos in the Greek or Mashiach in the Hebrew, then he is 
blasphemous. He is worthy of death. See, as far as they're concerned, because it can't possibly be true. It never dawns on them that it could be true because he's not them. He is not one of them. The idea that that a, a Galilean carpenter would be Hamashiach. Oh my goodness. No, no, no. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. Jesus declined to use the word Christos then, as now, both in chapter 8 and chapter 10, because of the political bearing on the word in their minds. In fact, they once tried to make him king. In John chapter 6, he fed the 5,000. Boom, wow, he's got to be our king. He can feed us every day. In uh, opposition to Pilate, when Jesus does confess on oath, see, they put him under oath. They make him swear before Caiaphas. And you can read this in Mark, read this in Matthew. Let's grab it there. He's keeping silent. He's keeping silent. Keeping silent. Of course, that's fulfilling Isaiah 53. The sheep before his shearers is silent. We're going to deal with this. Why do you not answer? Okay. Jesus kept silent. But then the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. He puts them under an oath in the name of the living God. And under that obligation, he can't stay silent. He has to speak. We'll study that. Tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to them, you have said it yourself. He admits, he confesses. And so the high priest tears his robes and says, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? In other words, I rest my case. Closing argument. End the trial. Let's execute him now. That's in their mindset here in chapter 10 when he's not going to use the term. When Jesus does confess on oath before Caiaphas that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Sanhedrin instantly vote him guilty of blasphemy and then bring him to Pilate with a charge of claiming to be king as a rival to Caesar. See, he knew their mind. and He was not going to fall for it. Not here. Not in December. He has to wait until Nisan the 14th. On Nisan 10, the Passover lamb is selected, the Passover lamb is set apart, and then on Nisan 14, the, the Passover lamb dies. He can't die on Kislev the 25th. Anyway, uh, interesting. Uh, I enjoyed uh, A.T. Robertson at that point. Now, next week, it's 11 o'clock. All right, so next week, we'll start getting into one of the most powerful and special passages Jesus ever taught. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify me, but you do not believe. And why? Why do they reject his message? Why do they reject the Father's miracles? Because you are not of my sheep. I think this is actually going to be a wonderful complement to our study in uh, soteriology on election. Okay? Because they are not his sheep. Because of that, they will not believe. They will not believe. And so we'll examine that and explore it. Both directions. They will not believe because they're not his sheep. You can also turn that around. They're not his sheep because they haven't believed or they will not believe. That's right. You can say it both ways, biblically and defend it. 
We'll talk about that. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the privilege we have. And this may be our last time. Father, we, we don't know. We're not promised today. We're not promised tonight. Maybe we won't have tonight, but you gave us this morning. And so we thank you for the teaching. We thank you for the truth. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.